You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hi everyone, today we'll be reading from John chapter 5, starting in verse 1, if you want to turn there. My name is Caroline, for those of you who don't know me, and I'm one of the leaders of the Bowen GC. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, so we'll start reading from John chapter 1, John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which was five which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going another Another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Caroline. Well, good morning again, City on a Hill. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, if you are new or visiting, just to echo what Lisa said, that when we gather on a Sunday, uh, we believe something that we, we saw in the Bible last week, that, that Jesus' Word does His work. And so we gather, and the main meal of our gathering is doing what we're doing right now, opening up the Bible and wanting to take it at its word. What is This author, in this case John, trying to say to us about Jesus and what that means for your life and for my life, uh, even here some 2,000 years after these events took place. So we're going to do that today, uh, as Lee said, in the third of seven of our signs. There were seven particular miracles, seven particular signs that John, the author of this biography of Jesus, pulled out of his life. He even says at the end of the book, and there were so many other signs that Jesus did I suppose all the books of all the world could not hold that much material if we were to recount every single one of them. Uh, Jesus did a lot, uh, but seven in particular that John wanted us to know. So today we look uh, at this one known as the healing uh, by the, the, the pool of the sa- on the Sabbath or the healing of the paralytic. Uh, and just to, to dive in, I assume we, we're all uh, there. If you don't have your, your phone out, the, the Bible 
passage that we're looking at will be on the screen. Uh, but just to introduce where we are going and what this sign is, is going to point us to, let me introduce you to a woman, uh, a woman named Elizabeth Holmes. You might have uh, heard of her. Elizabeth Holmes was the youngest self-made female billionaire for a time. Uh, when she was 30 years old, she was worth $4.5 billion. That was some nine years ago now. And that net worth uh, had, had accumulated uh, because Holmes was the founder and CEO of a company called Theranos, a medical technology company. And they had apparently invented a new machine called the Edison. Uh, and this little machine was uh, able, uh, allegedly, to, to diagnose 240 different diseases or, or sicknesses with a drop of blood uh, and so therefore uh, do it cheaply, uh, conveniently, uh, and very quickly. And so this technology was going to change the world. Billionaire investors threw their money uh, into this company and behind her vision, her own reputation and the company's stock were, were kind of trending up and to the right in the same direction. Well, today, Elizabeth Holmes is in prison. Uh, she is in jail serving an 11-year sentence for fraud. Because it turned out that, unfortunately, the whole technology was fraudulent. It simply didn't work. And it's a fascinating story that has a, a forthcoming movie uh, about her and the, the, the story. Uh, it's a fascinating story that's led to, to documentaries and podcasts and, and TV shows about it. But it's also fascinating because don't we, we, we just love the, the, the tantalizing story of, of drama and deception at our society's elite or the rich and famous. But more than that, and the reason I bring it up to begin uh, our, our passage today is it speaks to something about us as humanity. It speaks to something uh, that is perhaps an, an appetite in our very deepest being, that we are looking for things that we might put our hope in. We are looking for things that might grasp us. And you can imagine how popular this technology would have been had it been legitimate, that at our fingertips, literally, we would be able to have some sense of security and certainty about our health, about our future, some sense of empowerment, I guess, in the knowledge of whether we were truly well or had time uh, ticking. And so we as humans are looking for something to put our hope in. And in this case, it was too good to be true. In a similar sense, we, we, we love a, a good health fad, don't we? There are probably some of us who are, who are more vulnerable to them than others. You know, I've, I've heard recently that there are some women who have the, the placenta that, that, that comes out after, this is gross, but they, they, they encapsulate it so that they might have pills to have the, the nutrients that their baby was feeding on, they themselves might benefit from as well. I've heard uh, another health fad of, of coffee or caffeine enemas. Now, I know we're in Melbourne, we love coffee. Personally, I'm not so much into it, but, but some of you guys are addicted to coffee. Just out of love, let's just draw the line at coffee enemas, okay? Let's, let's not go there. Uh, do not have one of those. Uh, but we love a good health fad. Uh, and today we are turning to a first century health fad, in a sense. We are turning to a man in the grips of one, and we has, he has very good reason. And our heart will go out to him. Very good reason to be looking for hope uh, and we're going to look at what Jesus has to say to this man who is indeed looking for hope. The question that these fads, these strategies of finding certainty and hope ask of us is, is in the midst of grief, in the midst of the grind of our everyday human experience in our present world, what are we going to turn to for help? 
What are we going to turn to for help? And so today we're going to see Jesus, who has come down into the human experience, not just to take on flesh to become human, but entered even further to take on the human experience that you and I experience, the, the, the grind and the grief of our present world. And He's done so that He might offer us something more sure, more steady, and even perhaps more scientific than the things that we might grasp at in our world. As with every week in the series, whether you're here and you are just checking out Jesus, whether you're here and you are long-time committed to Jesus, these signs have something to say to you wherever you are at because all of us can glean uh, through these stories and these signs about what Jesus is trying to tell us and tell the world about who He is and what He's come to do. So we're going to open up John 5 now. I'm going to walk through uh, the story Uh, these 15 verses, and then we're going to pause and, as we've done the last couple of weeks, consider the sign. What is the point of Jesus having done this and said these things around it, uh, and then point out a few applications for us today? John chapter uh, 5, verse 1, it says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews. That after this is talking about the miracle we looked at last week, the healing of the official's son. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And so Jesus has just recently done his his loop uh, from Cana, departing Cana and back again. And so he turned water into wine in John chapter 2. Then he did a a loop, head down to the temple in Jerusalem, but then he headed back up to Galilee or to, to Cana where he grew up. And there he healed the official's son as we looked at last week. Jesus now travels to Jerusalem, and John doesn't tell us what festival or feast it was that had him go there. He doesn't really so concerned about about the time of of, of when this happened, the time of year. What he is concerned about is he really wants us to know the pool. He wants us to know where this sign happened. And so thankfully, because of his description and because of modern archaeology, we know where this pool was. It was in the northeast corner, and still is, in the northeast corner of the old city of Jerusalem, where archaeologists have found a a double pool. Uh, It probably looked a little bit something like this. We've got a photo, uh, well not a photo, a a recreation I should say, uh, of this rectangular series of of colonnades with a fifth uh, row of colonnades in the middle there creating two different pools. And so John tells us about the pool and he tells us more. Verse 3, in these, the colonnades, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And so that tells us that there's this, this narrative that's arisen about these particular pools. This was a, a popular place for the disabled, for those who were looking for, for help, for healing, hope. It was a place for hope for the disabled because the narrative was that, hey, if you can, if you can get into the pool, then you can be healed. Now, it just so happens that we have uh, evidence of, of perhaps the, these pools existing right throughout the Greco-Roman world. We're here in the first century uh, in Jerusalem. They were, they were being uh, overseen by the Romans, and this was the Greco-Roman world. If you know anything about the Greco-Roman world, you know that the, the Greek mythology. Uh, the Greeks uh, worshipped all sorts of different gods. There was a god for every kind of material thing, including a god of medicine known as Asclepius. And so evidently, some of the the pools around Jerusalem, some were reserved for kind of Judaism, for for rites of of, of washing and and, and rituals of of cleansing. Others were more 
public and open to everyone and were dedicated, rather, to what Greco-Romans were worshipping, and in this case, the god of medicine. These ones were particularly built over fountains or springs, and they were believed to have healing properties. Apparently, they would etch on the wall names of kind of testimonies of people who themselves, whether there in the moment or later, had been healed because of going down into the pool in this place. And so in a sense, what we are talking about here in the, by this pool is a temple or a, a, a shrine to Asclepius, the god of medicine. One ancient Roman architect writing in the first century before Jesus uh, in talking about designing cities says this, For all temples there shall be chosen the most healthy sites with suitable springs in those places where shrines are to be set up. And especially for Asclepius and Salus, and generally for those gods by whose medical power sick persons are manifestly healed. And so these pools developed a reputation. Perhaps something equivalent to what we might have today, the reputation for a particular hospital or a particular surgeon or a particular doctor, someone who, whose reputation is world-class, gone around the globe and a waiting list starts to develop to try to see that person because they are the specialists. They are the one who can heal my particular ailment. Well, there was this hope, this reputation around this pool of Asclepius. Unfortunately, like today, there was a long waiting list because John points out the one man, verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years, longer than, than many of us have been alive. 38 years. And we get the sense from the way John's writing here that, that perhaps he wasn't born this way that something tragic had happened 38 years ago to mean, as we find out, that this man cannot walk. And that tragedy has been compounded by the fact that he's perhaps sought doctor's advice. He's, he's perhaps sought other sorts of, of mythological medicine. And he hasn't had treatment and he hasn't been healed for 38 years. And so last week... Our empathy landed upon the father who was in this desperate situation for his sick son. This week, our empathy goes out to this man who we can understand why he's here. He, he, what, whatever possibly could help him, he'll be there. His friends, I'm sure, have carried him to sit there by this pool, hoping that he might be healed. Perhaps the other reason John tells us just how long he has been uh, under this condition is that he wants us to know that this isn't some secret, manipulative, backroom kind of healing. And it's not some kind of unknown issue that's been healed. It's not as if, hey, he just had a tummy ache. And then Jesus prayed for him. Be God, miraculously, he doesn't have a tummy ache anymore. No, this was a known, this guy was a public figure because of how long he had been a paralytic. John, uh, Jesus engages the man, John tells us, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. For 38 years, he's been wanting help. He's been looking for hope. And now three words are about to change this man's life. Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him. And that's worded perhaps like that to show us the kindness and fittingly on the day like that, the compassion of Jesus. 
J.C. Ryle says about the Jesus we see in this episode that he is far more ready to save than man is to be saved, far more willing to do good than man is to receive it. Jesus goes up to him. Jesus is, is proactive. He's not doing other things and gets bothered by people who want him to heal their friend. Jesus pursues this guy. And yet we notice from the guy's answer that what J.C. Ryle might, might, uh, said might be true, that, that 38 years has taken a toll on him. And so the man answers him, but he man answers him with, with this sense of frustration and bitterness. The belief at the time was that when the water was stirred, likely because the spring underneath would, would spring up, as they do, uh, the, the, the water would bubble and, and be stirred, that those who were first in were best dressed. Those who were first would get healed. Apparently some had, but not this guy. That try as he might to, to kind of crawl his way into the pool whenever it happened, he could never do it. He was never fast enough. And so he stuck for 38 years. Then Jesus says something outrageous to a man who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. John again words it in a way to point out particular things. He wants us to know. At once, the man was healed. 38 years of muscular atrophy. 38 years of inflexibility. 38 years, never been able to stretch out his leg muscles. 38 years of his limbs and his joints not combining. And at once, at the word of Jesus, this man was good to go. It tells us, doesn't it, that Jesus can reverse chronic effects in our lives at once. Jesus can change things that perhaps have impacted us and generations at once. Things that no other approach has seemed to work at once. Jesus speaks and it's gone. But incredibly, this miracle, this, this sign, this healing doesn't please everybody. Let's, let's read the, the rest of the passage just there in the second half of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. It's incredible, isn't it? That 38 years this guy hasn't been able to walk. For 38 years, everybody's bypassed him as he's been sitting there. For 38 years, and now this guy takes up his bed and walks off, and the religious leaders are right there to say, Not today, buddy. Not today. This is not the day to start walking. After 38 years, it shows us, doesn't it, that it's not the paralytic who's the only one in this story that's sick. And they also weren't correct, just by way of a little bit of a, a background here. The Old Testament, you might know, one of the commandments, the fourth commandment, uh, is to respect and obey the Sabbath. But the original declaration is that, 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 hey, no work be done on the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. That was it. But in trying to define what no work would look like the, the religious leaders, the elders at the time, uh, didn't kind of just subscribe to a more general kind of, hey, just stop doing your usual way of making a living that you do during the week for that one day. No, they added 39 classes of work. And one of those 39 was that you were not allowed to take or carry anything from one place to another. And so this man was breaking their law, not God's. And so in response to being blamed for walking or carrying something on the Sabbath, 
This man blames Jesus. He, to him, still doesn't know who Jesus is. He was just this random guy who told him to get up and walk, and he walked. But he puts the blame back on Jesus. Then John uh, ends our little episode here in verse 13. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And so Jesus pursues him again. Jesus engages him again. Jesus finds him again to point out to him who he is who has healed him. And more than that, to turn the healing into a bigger encouragement that this guy needs to change his whole life. He needs to change his whole mindset. He needs to change his faith and start, stop putting his hope in these false helps, these false gods, and start putting his hope in the one who has the authority to heal him. Perhaps his paralysis had happened because there, were, there was sin or foolishness in his life some 38 years ago that caused it. But more likely, what Jesus is doing there is telling him to, to flee from entrusting himself from these, to these false hopes. And to instead see the sign as pointing to who Jesus is, who Jesus can be for him, and who Jesus will be on the final day when he meets the true God face to face. And so Jesus is saying to him, entrust yourself to me while you still can. And then in response, John points out that perhaps this miracle, he kind of took it in his stride, he just got up and ran off and didn't really think about why this happened at all because he's left dobbing on Jesus again. So what do we learn from this? What is the sign that's going on? What is Jesus doing in performing this miracle, this sign for us in this public way and then explaining it? Here, here's what I think it is. Jesus has the authority to roll back the curse. Jesus has the authority to roll back the curse. Let's think about what's going on here. And as I unpack uh, this headline, uh, I'm going to draw out three particular things that I think this means for you that flow from Jesus' final words here. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus wants him, in that phrase, to see what he's done physically for the man, historically for the man, truly for the man, that he also can do something for him spiritually. He wants to see it as a, a living parable. For 38 years, this guy was stuck in this situation. For 38 years, this guy was looking for a solution. For 38 years, this guy was desperate for change and for transformation. And that empathy that we feel for this man in this situation stuck should be matched by the hatred that we feel for the sin that brought about such a predicament. If you're new to the Bible, you should know that it explains to us how our world got how it is today. The Bible has explanatory power for us making sense of the way that we experience the world today. There's strife. There's conflict, there's war, there's sickness, there's disaster, there's pain, there's tears, there's paralysis. And yet the Bible tells us it was never meant to be this way. Now we know the difficulty of our lived experience. Perhaps we experience it at this time of year or coming up to the Christmas season more than others. Uh, I know in my family, we, we love Christmas. In fact, this weekend, our Christmas tree went up. Has anyone beaten our family in putting their Christmas tree up? 
Yes, one. Thank you, Danielle. The rest of you, you're all Grinches. You need to get with the program. Get into the spirit of Christmas. Come on. It is Christmas. Now, Christmas is a time of great joy, great feasting, singing, music, laughter, family. And yet at the same time, isn't it, don't we know that, that these times that can be so positive and so warm are at the very same time the moments where we experience the, the difficulty of our human experience. That, that at the same time, we're, we're loving with times with, with friends and family. We're also reminded of the people who aren't there. We're reminded of the family who aren't at the dining table. That death has taken them too soon. That cancer has riddled their body. That perhaps even the people who are there, it's not so much a joyous time. Rather, the people that we would so long to be one with, so long to be close with, instead there's relational tension, there's conflict, there's awkwardness, there's strife. Just like Christmas, it seems that the, the very things that where we find the, the deepest joys in life are also the very things that magnify how difficult life can be. The family is awesome until it's not. Relationships are awesome, but maintaining them is a, is a struggle. It takes effort. It takes investment. We naturally drift apart. Work itself is, is fulfilling, and yet it's an absolute grind that works against us. Everything in our lives, especially those things from which we squeeze out the most joy, seem to break unless we tend to them. And so our lived experience, we, we know life is hard. We age. We wrinkle. We grow apart. We pass away. But the Bible tells us it, it wasn't meant to be this way. The Bible tells us that in the very beginning, God created all things and there was harmony, there was synergy, there was beauty, there was goodness. And God at the capstone of his creation, created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, made in his image to rule like him over his creation. And even them experienced joy and peace and harmony with the God who made them. And yet it was by our first parents' disobedience, when they sought to become God themselves, that that fractured and broke our collective relationship with God, that they were, as the first, working living on our behalf, and it brought a curse upon our world. And so while our world was made to be in relationship with God, that without it, all things, even nature itself, it starts to break. Weeds, cancer, earthquakes, our bodies breaking down, all explained by the fact that you and I are living under this curse. So ever since then, all of us, because we have that initial impulse toward harmony, toward synergy, toward joy with God, our Creator, and yet are living under this curse, we wallow in a broken world looking for hope. And so these people here by this pool, under these colonnades, they were feeling the effects of the curse upon their bodies. And their hope, they were looking to Asclepius for healing. Now perhaps in our modern world, if we're in their predicament, we wouldn't look in the same direction. Perhaps our modern world, uh, we've outgrown that, haven't we? We've outgrown Greek mythology. We wouldn't be led to to a Greek God, but the Bible says that we and all creation is groaning. And perhaps in our groaning, through our brokenness and our lived experience, we'll look to other superstitions for hope. Perhaps in our day, we'll look to 
to politics or a political vision or, or the right legislative decisions being made that's going to kind of graduate our society out of this strife, out of this conflict and into a season and golden age of peace. Perhaps we might put our, our hope in, in technological advancement. And if only the, the right things could be invented that might give us the, the comforts and the, the convenience and the efficiencies that would then drive perhaps up the economy and the GDP could rise to a point where we could be uplifted as a society and again graduate into a utopian kind of future. Perhaps personally we put our hope in financial freedom, that that is going to be the thing, that we can finally retire from the daily grind and do what we want. Romantic partners to level up our emotional life, future children to achieve all the things that we fail to do in our own lives, stock markets going up and to the right that we might level up our net worth and finally arrive, social justice movements kind of leading us out from beyond the, the badness and the bad guys who are, who are keeping us stuck in regression. We even see it in the, in the narrative, in this story, that the, the Jews, the religious leaders at the time, had even taken religion and taken their traditions and their obedience to it, that that was their great hope of leveling up out of this cursed experience that they were within. Anything that might help reverse the curse that our lives testify to. And so Jesus in this story comes along and shows himself to be stronger than pagan gods. And he even questions the religion of the day and the traditions of the day. And he shows himself to be stronger than anything else that we might put our hope in. Now, just to be clear, it is good and right that we take advantage of modern-day medicine. It is good and right that we see medicine as a common grace of God given to humanity and worked uh, or provided to us through, because we're made in His image, human ingenuity. But this story shows us that only Jesus fits as our final hope. Only Jesus fits as our final hope. And so as this man was rolling back his bed to walk away, Jesus was fulfilling a vision, a prophecy of, of, of the one who would come to start rolling back the curse upon our world. The book of Isaiah talked about this and about the day of the, the coming Messiah in Isaiah 35. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And so every blink and every step that came about because of the words of Jesus are evidence that in Jesus, God is rolling back the curse of our world. And so the first thing that you should know from this sign is that it won't always be this way. It won't always be like this. Our pain and suffering, the strain and the grind, the curse will not always be upon us forever. Jesus came with the authority to start rolling it back. And one day, he's going to roll it all back. He's going to roll it back for good. No more crying, no more pain anymore. No more sickness, no more death anymore. All things will be made new. It won't always be like this. Now, perhaps as we hear that, we, we have a qualm about what Jesus is doing here because it is like this right now. There is still 
sickness and death. There is still pain and sorrow. There is still bodies breaking down and uh, mental health issues and relational fallout and all sorts of things that make life heavy. It is true that Jesus is showing here that he has the authority to roll it back, but we notice that he hasn't done it yet in total. He hasn't done it in full just yet. And so what does that mean for our life right now? Well, I think the, the second application of this story is if you're in Jesus, hard things now help you. Hard things now help you. The Bible's view of suffering uh, is so profound. And we've got to put together a few different realities here. But sickness and suffering, they still exist. And the, the Bible, uh, perhaps more than other writings, acknowledges this. There's a, there's a whole book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. You are encouraged to lament the brokenness of our experience. The Psalms crying out, How long, O Lord, that it is right, it is godly, to ask, why? I think so difficult, complicated, and painful in our life. But the New Testament tells us that when we're in Jesus, even the effects of the curse are used for us and not against us. I was reading recently the, the story of Joan Murray, who was a, an American uh, skydiver. Uh, and she did in 1999 something that American skydivers do. She, she went skydiving. Uh, and, and she jumped out of a plane at 14 thousand feet high uh, and as she was kind of free falling to the earth you know you've got that kind of first minute of just free fall where you're just kind of enjoying it enjoying the scenery and then you know a minute goes by and, and you're like all right gotta pull gotta pull the first chute and so she pulled the first parachute didn't work it's like all good got a backup pulled the backup parachute it didn't work and so she's careening toward the ground from 14,000 feet it just so happened that when she hit the, the earth, she landed upon a mound of fire ants and she survived. And she survived that fall, not because the mound softened the blow, like you can't really soften the blow when you're falling uh, from that high. She survived, it was discovered later, that the fire ants were triggered by this, what is this lump that's fallen upon us, that hundreds of them came out and stung her all at the same time and the sting created an adrenaline response in her body that kept her heart beating and she lived and so she was in a coma for two weeks she was out of hospital after six weeks and she was back skydiving in 2001 now i share that interesting story to tell you that the, the testimony of the bible and the confession and the, the lived experience of millions of christians for the couple of thousand years since this moment and since the New Testament, is that God often uses the suffering that we experience a little bit like the bites of the fire, a little bit like an, an adrenaline shock to our hearts, to our faith, to keep it alive, even in the midst of such grueling pain and difficulty. Maybe you know this in your own life. I know it in my own experience, that your greatest times with God so often come when you are living out the hardest circumstances in your life. The Apostle Paul, who himself, no stranger at all to suffering, he said about his own experience after, after detailing all sorts of terrible things he was enduring, his, his lived experience under the curse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
And so his body was taking a beating. And yet his heart was being renewed day by day. 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, uh, he himself endured uh, incredible bouts of depression uh, and even disaster in his life and ministry. He said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Joni Erickson Tata, she became a, a paraplegic at the age of 17 after a diving accident. She said, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And so here's this, this, this tension that we live in, in this it's already not yet era, where Jesus has started to roll back, or shown that he can roll back the curse, and yet has not yet done it. We live in this time where, where it is good and right to want to avoid suffering. That it is a, a biblical response to hate it, to lament it, to grieve difficulty, and at the same time, the reality that God uses hard things to help us and to draw us closer to Him. If we're in Jesus, the curse now works for us and not against us. Hard things now help us. One of the ways it does is that that ultimately we know that beyond this story, the endurance of the curse isn't something that we've done, we're we're enduring alone, but, but Jesus, after showing that He had the authority to roll it back, let it go upon himself. He laid down his authority and submitted to being beaten, to being mocked, to being ultimately dying upon a cross in our place. And so that means that that Jesus himself, God himself in the flesh knows everything you've been through. And not just knows it as in, oh, I know this person has gone through that. That must be hard. No, he knows it in the way that he has been through it too. He has lived it too. And so Jesus in part left the curse so that he himself would be a victim of it and of the sin of others against him on the cross for our salvation. Finally, this this dialogue that he has with the the paralytic here, it leads to the rest of John chapter 5. It's this this whole back and forth, this whole exchange of Jesus now trying to convince the the religious elites who were triggered by it happening on the Sabbath who he is. And what he has come for. And so that leads us to the, the, the final, the third application, I think, from the reality that, that Jesus has the authority to roll back the curse is, number three, that Jesus offers everlasting rest. Because it's significant, isn't it, that, that John wants us to know this happened on the Sabbath. It's significant that of 38 years, Jesus chose the Sabbath to go and pursue, see the man, engage with the man, and heal the man. There's something intentional playing out here on the Sabbath. And when Jesus says to the man, go and sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you, he's telling the man, hey, there's a day coming. There is a future moment coming. After he said that, as the narrative unfolds with the elites or the, the religious leaders, they say that, Jesus, you've got no right to heal on the Sabbath. And we're told by John, he just kind of inserts uh, 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 like an observation here in verse 18 that this was why they wanted to kill him. He says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus wasn't just no mere human teacher. Jesus wasn't just just a guy that went around saying cool things that are kind of tweetable and and worthy of putting on a coffee cup or inspirational print in your study. We have here the eyewitness, the, 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 one of the best friends of Jesus, tell us that Jesus went around 
proving that he was God, saying that he was God, claiming that he was equal with God. And the dialogue continues, where where Jesus very plainly says to them why he has come and what this healing points to. He says in in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour, hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so this real, in time, in space, historical miracle was a setup, a sign for you, for me, for them, for all of the world, that in Jesus we can find true life. In Jesus we can have the resurrected life. In Jesus we can finally find hearts that are no longer enslaved to sin, but are set free, are forgiven, and are made alive to beat for Jesus. This is as if he's saying that, that in Jesus, you can find spiritual legs that will now walk with me. Just as this story points us to Jesus' real, true authority to handle the physical symptoms of the curse, it also tells us that he's starting with the spiritual symptoms. He wants to raise you from spiritual death and give you a new life. In Jesus, we can have a heart that beats for him. And so Jesus wants you to see this paralytic for 38 years, desperate, needy. He wants, to see, he wants you to see yourself in him. That the only remedy to our inner groaning, the only remedy to the outer experience we have of the curse being upon us is the authoritative Jesus, who is now writing what's wrong with the world. And so as we finish, notice that this happened on the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath? The Sabbath was the day of rest. The Sabbath was that that one day of of comfort or that one day of compassion in a world of chaos. The one day of remembrance where everything else was, was restless and hard and a grind. That one day of fresh air in the midst of the suffocating nature of life under the curse. And so Jesus chooses this day to heal on this day in a very public way as if he wants to announce through this reality and the timing of it, hey, this one day of the week that you experience rest, I want that to mark your entire life with me. Jesus provokes them on the Sabbath to point out what they're really trusting in and to point them to something better than a day a week. To point them to a a new life that they could have with him. And maybe Jesus is, is pointing that out to you today. Jesus has come into our broken world to take on the effects of it himself and he's done it so that we could relate to him and through him be reconciled to God, his and our Father. See, the curse of the world is something that you and I are all victims of. You and I are all people who have felt it and yet we're also, you you and I are are people who have contributed to it. That all of us, like our first parents, have have gone our own way, have, have ignored God's rule over our life and instead Jesus came that he might be cursed for us. Cursed is any man who hangs upon a tree, the Old Testament says. And yet Jesus hung there for us in our place, taking upon the curse so that we could go free with him. And so you can follow Jesus today. You can find a new kind of freeing power within your heart to be made alive today. You can find holy endurance to continue to get through 
our lived experience, this life in this broken world today. And you can experience the fresh air of the Sabbath day, every day, by turning to Jesus, who has lived your life, died your death, and risen again. And that Jesus ends his interaction with the man pointing to the day of judgment is a great reminder to us that that's true for him, that's true for the Jews, that's true for Elizabeth Holmes, and it's true for you and me, that one day we will stand before not the false hopes that we've trusted in, but the true and living God. That we will stand before Him and we will give an account for what it, who it is or what it is that we have trusted Him, trusted in. And so take heed of that offer. Find your hope in Jesus in the midst of this broken world. I'm going to pray for us now. And if you want to engage with the things we've talked about, please, let's chat after the service. Let me pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the generosity of your creation, for the glory and beauty of the ways that you have established your world and allowed us to live within it. And yet, Lord, we mourn and we grieve and we lament the reality that we have felt the impact and also contributed to the impact of the curse upon our world. Lord, we have run from you. We have lived life our own way. We have looked to other things to level us up in life and in which we pursue hope. Lord, forgive us. Have mercy upon us. Keep us from being like this man who received so much blessing from you and yet forgets you and walks away. Lord, may we be a people who are driven by the despair we feel, driven by the the Uh, vanity of it all, not away from you, but toward you. And so we thank you for this sign. We thank you that you came and dwelt amongst us and you did this so that you might be able to call us to the one who can roll back the curse, so that you might be able to call us to the one who is authoritative enough to give us a new heart that doesn't run from you, but runs towards you, that you might be calling us and inviting us to come and put our trust in you so that that day when we see you face to face, that it might go well for us. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might heed that invitation, that we might take up that call and we might accept your generous, compassionate, kind and gracious offer of being reunited with you. Help us. We need you. Be with us. Help us endure as people, people of the cross. Help us endure the difficult things because we know in them you are accumulating for us glory that you are using even in today these days them as gifts for us to help us hold on to you by your holy spirit would you give us strength to do that and would you give us strength now to see jesus for who he really is our risen and ruling lord we pray this in jesus mighty name and all god's people said amen thank you for listening to our podcast if you'd like to know more about our church Or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.